You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. If you have been a Christian for quite some time, there are certain things that you expect when you come to church in the month of December. A Christmas tree, Christmas decorations, Christmas songs, and a sermon that will get you into the holiday spirit. Which is why today's passage might seem a little bit unusual and out of place. This is not your typical Christmas story. Instead of a silent and holy night, there is war going on in heaven. Instead of angels singing, you have angels fighting. Instead of a baby sleeping in a manger, there's a baby that is exposed to immediate danger. Now, this is not the typical Christmas story that we grew up with. But I believe when understood correctly, this is the most beautiful and hopeful account of Christmas in the entire Bible. Now, before we jump into today's passage, I just want to mention one thing about the book of Revelation. A lot of Christians avoid the book of Revelation for several reasons. You know, it's long, it's hard, it's full of weird imagery, right? If you read Harry Potter, it seems like that's more relevant and real than the book of Revelation. Um, a lot of people get confused just by reading the book. A lot of people get scared just by reading this book. There's so many opinions about this book and so many different interpretations about this book. And that's why I think a lot of times we just stay away from it. Uh, we, we just get, get scared about knowing what happens at the end. It's just this mysterious book about the end times. Uh, but I want to make an argument today that the book of Revelation is not a weird book. It's not a scary book. It's actually a pretty awesome book because it is the word of God. Now, it is a book about Jesus Christ. If you read the first verse in the book of Revelation, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's exactly where we get the, the, the title of the book, Revelation, the apocalypse, the revealing of Christ. This book begins with the revelation of Christ and it ends with the promise that Christ is coming back. The book of Revelation, it doesn't just reveal weird things about the future. It reveals our Christ, Jesus, who came to save us and who will come again to save us. The book of Revelation is a beautiful book that talks about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, I want to jump into today's story. Today's passage, it contains several signs that John sees in heaven. In verse 1, it says, a great sign appeared in heaven. In verse 3 again, it says, another sign appeared in heaven. So John here, he's not daydreaming. He's not delusional. No, it's not something that's going on in his head. He sees um, something in the sky that's very clear. Um, this is not just random visions, but these are signs that point to something, to a greater reality. Um, this is something that is revealed by God. These are not just random thoughts or random images that he sees. First, he sees a radiant woman. It says that she is clothed with the sun, and on her feet there's the moon, and on her head there's a crown of 12 stars. And in verse 2, we see that she's pregnant and she's clearly in pain. She's about to give birth to a child. 
So who is this woman? There's three main characters that appear in this passage. I think if we correctly identify these characters, I think we'll be in good shape to understand this passage. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that this woman is Mary because they have a very high view of Mary, right? But, I mean, it's true that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a woman of faith. She's this awesome figure. She's probably one of the most significant pregnant women in the Bible, um, giving birth to our Savior. But nowhere in the Bible is Mary glorified in such a way. You don't see Mary in this in this glorious form where she's clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Some people believe that this woman represents Israel, which I think there's a lot of truth to it, because this imagery, the sun, the moon, the stars, it should remind us of um, Genesis 37, where we see Joseph have a dream. And in that dream, Joseph, he sees the sun, who represents um, his father, Jacob, sees the moon, which represents his mother, and then he sees 11 stars that are bowing down to him, which represents his brothers, which later on builds the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this woman is clearly in birth pain, which is an expression that is used over and over again in the Old Testament, um, describing how Israel is awaiting a Messiah in, in suffering. So clearly, this woman reminds us of Israel. But I don't think this woman strictly represents the nation of Israel or the, uh, the, the, the country of Israel. Later in verse 17, we see that um, there's these offsprings that come out from the woman, and the offsprings are described in such a way. It says, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So I think in a large sense, I believe that this woman represents the people of God. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, it's the believers who submit to the lordship of Christ. So we have this radiant woman. She represents the people of God. She is pregnant, and she is clearly in pain. And then John sees another figure come in the sky. In verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, which are crowns. So now, next to the radiant woman, we see a red dragon. And this dragon is pretty dangerous, right? You can tell by the color red that this dragon is a murderer. He, he, he is dangerous by nature. He is deadly. And then we see the seven heads, ten horns, seven royal crowns, and you, if you look that up in the Old Testament and also other place in, places in the book of Revelation, it's a sign of power and authority. It means that this dragon is pretty powerful. That's why it's called not just the red dragon, but called the great red dragon. And this dragon is so powerful that in verse 4 we see that he, he sweeps one-third of the stars of the heavens and casts them to the earth just with his tail. So this dragon, he is aggressive. He is reckless. He destroys and disrupts what God has created. And according to verse 9, we see that this dragon is none other than the devil himself, Satan, the ancient serpent, the one who deceived Adam and Eve back in the garden, the one who is called the devil, which means slander, a murderer, according to John 8, the one who deceives the whole, whole world. That's the great red dragon. So we have a pregnant, radiant woman, which represents the people of God, and we have a great red dragon that represents Satan, the devil. And here's where things get interesting. In the middle of verse 4, it says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, 
he might devour it. So just picture this in your head. This woman is about to give birth. She's on her back, right? And she's about to push the baby out. And right in front of her is not a doctor, it's not a nurse, but it's this red dragon waiting to devour, to eat this child. No, this picture is meant to be grotesque. This picture is meant to be sick. The, the woman is in deep trouble. She is defenseless. She is no match to this mighty dragon. You know, we have no idea what's going to happen to this kid. But she carries on with um, her birth. Uh, she gives birth to a male child in verse 8, and it says this male child is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod iron. So we have the third figure, the child, the male child. And this male child has a rod iron. Now that expression, ruling the nations with a rod iron, we only see it in one other place in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation. That is in Psalm 2, where the psalm describes this coming Messiah when the nations laugh against God and they say, where is your God? It talks about this Messiah that will come and rule the nations. And also that psalm describes that this Messiah is actually the Son of God. God calls this Messiah his son. This child is Jesus, the Messiah, the promised son of God. So back in the garden, in Genesis 3.15, we get a promise where after Satan deceives Adam and Eve, God warns Satan that the offspring of the woman, the promised seed of the woman, will one day destroy the head of the snake. Because of this, Satan does everything he could do to disrupt this promise from being fulfilled. And we saw the long lineage of Jesus, how in the course of history, different people were involved in his genealogy. And you think, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, there are so many times when that genealogy could have been disrupted and messed up. In the Old Testament, there's a couple figures that are described as the dragon. Uh, in Ezekiel 29, we have the Pharaoh who... It's called the dragon, the one who persecuted the people of God in the land of Egypt. We have in Jeremiah 51, the king Nebuchadnezzar, who is described as the dragon, the one who persecuted the people of God during the exile. In Psalm 74, Isaiah 51, we have Egypt being represented as Leviathan, which is this great sea monster, which is kind of the equivalent to a dragon in the Old Testament, which reminds us of Satan. Throughout history, there were people who tried to destroy Israel and who tried to disrupt the lineage of this Messiah. But we see behind the scenes is something satanic. We see that the dragon is involved. And finally, in Revelation 12, it's revealed that the dragon has been attempting to kill this baby for a long time. It's not just about preventing this male child from being born, but we also see that after this male child is born, this dragon has plans to destroy the child. You know, Satan tried to kill Jesus by influencing King Herod, um, by slaughtering uh, innocent babies. Satan tried to persuade Jesus by tempting him three times in the wilderness. You know, Satan, he goes into Peter, and when Jesus is describing his plan to go to the cross, how he has to suffer and ultimately go to the cross, you know, Peter rebukes Jesus, saying, none of this shall happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And finally, Satan enters into Judas Iscariot so that ultimately he would betray his master. When Jesus was on the cross, Satan probably thought that he had Jesus right where he wanted him to be. On the cross, Jesus seemed defenseless, seemed hopeless, just like this male child that was right in front of this dragon. 
But the Bible tells us that this male, ch- male child was not destroyed. But in verse 5, it says, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in one verse, we get the birth, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. God flips the script on Satan. Instead of Satan destroying this male child, God, he brings this child up to his rightful throne. Now, Satan, he can plan, he can try, but ultimately we see that he is no match for God. And you might be one, wonder, you know, why doesn't God elaborate on this, this fact that, um, uh, that Jesus, you know, he died and he, he rose again about that whole gospel message? You know, why don't we have that full kind of narrative there? Well, it's because back in chapter 5, we already get a beautiful picture of Jesus being the lion and the lamb and how uh, Jesus in his death on the cross made a difference in our life. So uh, I think because of that, John, he doesn't describe that part. Instead, he highlights the fact that Jesus is exalted, and as a result, the enemy is defeated. So God leads the woman into the wilderness in verse 6. She goes to a place that is prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Now, I don't know if you're good with math. If you divide 1,260 days with 30, which is roughly about how long a month is, you get 42 months, which is exactly three and a half years. Now, this might seem like a very random number, but in the book of Daniel, we see that this is a symbolic number that represents the time of persecution, um, a time where the people of God experience great pain and sorrow, but yet they are protected by God. So in the same way, this woman, although she is in the midst of persecution by the dragon, God, he protects the woman. And this woman goes to the place in the wilderness where she can be nourished and where she can be protected. She can grow. So Satan fails and God prevails. And this event is illustrated in a more dramatic way in the second half of today's passage. In verse 7, starting from verse 7, we see another vision. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fight against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fight back. The demons fight back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. Now, there's many opinions on when this event takes place. Some people believe that this is talking about the original war in heaven. This is how basically Lucifer, he came down with his demons. He was cast out from heaven. Some people believe that this is an event that is going to happen in the future. But I personally believe um, that this is an event that takes place after the death, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I view it more as a continuation of the previous passage. Because Later on, it talks about the blood of the lamb. No, not only does the dragon fail to destroy the male child on the cross, but he gets whooped uh, by, by Michael and his angels um, in, in a very dramatic fashion. And as a result, Satan is defeated, he is demoted, and verse 8, we see that he is no longer in heaven. There's no longer a place for him in heaven. In verse 9, three times it says that the dragon was thrown down along with his demons. The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one who deceives the whole world, the devil, the father of lies, he is now thrown down. He is clearly defeated. The cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a difference. Jesus is exalted. Satan comes down. Satan is defeated now. 
And to sum this up, the significance of this, in verse 10 and verse 11, we see a beautiful declaration in heaven. It says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accused them day and night before our God. And verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So we see that the dragon is clearly defeated. You know, I mean, um, maybe this might not excite you. Maybe this not be shocking to you. Because a lot of us, don't, we don't believe in dragons anyway. The other day in our, in our Bible study, uh, teacher's Bible study for youth, uh, we had this question, you know, if you can have any pet, what would you have? And someone said, a dragon. And people gave that teacher such a hard time because, you know, people don't believe in dragons, right? Well, the Bible says that there is a dragon, right? Um, and, and this dragon has a pretty strong case against us. The reason why Revelation 12 is so critical is because... Um, it tells us what we have to defeat, or what we can do to defeat the dragon. It tells us our weapon as far as us fighting against the dragon. You know, just like Satan accused Job before the Lord, um, you, know, you remember back in Job 1, Satan goes into the presence of God and he says, you know, uh, Job, he's just faithful to you because he has all this stuff. If you take away his stuff, if you take away his possessions, his family, he would never serve you. In a sense, he's accusing Job before the throne of God. And God says, yeah, go ahead, test him. You know, Satan, that's what he does. He presses charges against God's people. He brings out their problems, right? He has a pretty strong case as well, if you think about it. Because on our own, we are absolutely guilty before a holy, righteous, and perfect God. Really, there's nothing that we can say before the throne of God. When God is the eternal judge, he knows everything. Every thought that we ever had, every move that we made, every little thing about our life, he knows exactly what took place in our lives. And when you stand before him and understanding that his ways are perfect and his knowledge is perfect, there's really not much you can say before him. And Satan knows this. He knows that he is defeated, but also he knows that we are not that clean as well. He knows that he has no business in the presence of God Yet, he doesn't want to go down quietly. Therefore, he accuses the brothers. He accuses the people. Uh, he accuses people uh, before God. But here's the thing. When we were absolutely guilty before the throne of God, God gave us a Savior. And when you believe in Jesus, when you submit to his lordship, what you get is you get a lawyer, a pretty good lawyer, for free. Well, it's free for us, but it costs Jesus everything. Um, and the best part about this is our lawyer is connected to the judge. Uh, in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is someone who publicly uh, speaks on our behalf. It's someone who makes a case on our behalf. When you believe in Jesus, you get the best judge, no, you get the best lawyer in the entire world for free because he paid the price on the cross. Satan is dangerous. He's deadly, but he is no match for God. He accuses us, and rightfully so, because we are guilty, yet his accusation has no power over the blood of the Lamb. And that's exactly what it says in verse 11. 
we conquer Satan, the enemy, with two things, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. It is possible to remain faithful in the midst of persecution, in the midst of our sin, because what we believe is that it's not us that God sees in front of the judgment seat of God, but it's the righteousness of Jesus that he sees when we believe in him. When we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, that blood is sufficient to give us a pass. Satan is defeated. He is no longer in power. And the last thing he can do is accuse you. But you can always call upon your lawyer, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior. And it would have been nice if the story ended like this, right, in a very high note. But there is this last portion, this third portion in chapter 12, where we see the dragon. He's enraged. He knows that his time is short. He's pissed off, right? He's frustrated. And therefore, he makes one final push. He says, okay, I couldn't kill the male child. Therefore, I'm going to go after the woman. And he goes after the woman. He tries to do all these crazy stuff, um, you know, um, yet he fails. says in verse 14, The woman was protected by God for a time and times and half a time. And a time means one year, and times means two years, and half a time means half a year. It's kind of the same thing as the uh, 1,260 days. Uh, For that period of time, in the midst of persecution, God again protects his people. How? By giving the woman two wings um, of the great eagle. And here, God is not talking about Red Bull. He's, he's not talking about giving wings. Uh, you know, I know we have some students right now who are really tired because it's finals. Um, and I just want to remind you that it's not Red Bull that gives you wings. It's the grace of God. So continue to press on, continue to pray. Uh, but it's pretty clear. It's God who gives us wings. And this expression is just not a funny expression, but in Exodus 19, um, when God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, he actually uses the expression. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out of Egypt myself. The ultimate sign of protection, God gives us wings. The dragon creates a great flood against the woman, but he fails again. Therefore, the dragon gets furious, right? He's frustrated even more, so he goes after the offsprings of the woman. But again, he ultimately fails. So at the end of the day, Satan is defeated, God is victorious, and the people of God are protected in the midst of persecution because of one thing, because a child was born. And that child was not just any child, but that child was the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was promised for thousands and thousands of years, the one who was born against all odds, and the one who is going to come back and rule over the nations. Christmas is not Jesus' birthday. You know, Christmas is not just this warm, fuzzy holiday. You know, Christmas is the beginning of an end. Against all odds, Jesus came. And through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, he has defeated the devil, the enemy who tried to mess up God's plan from the very beginning. That enemy is defeated. We have a real enemy, by the way. And he is furious. He is is angry right now. You ever wonder why there's so much evil in this world? You ever wonder why every time you read the news, it's so depressing? This is a reality. 
I believe right now we are living in that three and a half years time period where people of God are experiencing persecution. Yet God continually, he protects his people and he gives us a testimony. And he gives us the blood of the lamb so that we can stand firm, that we can stay faithful even to the point of death. It says today that these people were not afraid to give up their lives for the Lamb of God. This tells you that if you live faithfully for the Lord, sometimes you might lose your life. But that wouldn't scare you because you have something that is greater than life. As the people of God, we can live in confidence. We can remain faithful because our enemy is defeated. So in this Christmas season, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what kind of evil you're experiencing. But remember that God has not forgotten his people, that he remembers his promise. And just like he fulfilled his promise 2,000 years ago, by sending a Messiah, he's going to fulfill his promise by sending him again. And this time, it's not going to be a little baby. It's going to be our warrior Messiah. Let's pray. Revelation chapter 12 is such a critical passage in the Bible because I think it summarizes the entire Bible. How from the very beginning there is this, this conflict between good and evil. How we have an enemy that is so real, that is dangerous, that is deadly. He is the red dragon. He is powerful. He knows how to deceive. And he has a pretty, case, a pretty good case against us that he can accuse us of our sins. And on our own, we stand guilty. On our own, we stand helpless. On our own, we stand hopeless. But praise God that God, in his sovereignty, in his grace, he sent a male child that would change the course of history, that would change the course of your life and my life. Because of him, we can live victoriously in the midst of persecution. Because of him, we can have hope in the midst of this dark world. Do you see a lot of evil around you? Is life unfair for you? Are people giving you a hard time in life? Is it hard to be a Christian? Well, if that's the case, good for you. Because that's exactly what the people of God should experience. And in the midst of your persecution, God gives protection. Maybe for some of us, um, some of you, you don't experience this type of persecution. You feel like, you know, my life is just easy. There's nothing going on in my life. Maybe, just maybe, it's because Satan is not worried about you right now. Maybe you are so filled with the world Maybe you are so satisfied with what the world has to offer. Later on, we see that the people, they follow another great creature, the beast, that represents Satan as well. And they just love the fact that the beast gives them pleasure and joy in life. If that is you, Satan is not going to touch you. He's going to give you more prosperity. He's going to give you better jobs, better houses, more income so that you can just live in your sin not knowing the reality of your heart. So don't be discouraged when you face persecution. Be encouraged. Because that is what we're called to endure. And we have grace and we have power in God and in the gospel. So let's pray.